season three, episode two, Cast and Blast Conversations. To say I am monumentally pumped about this episode would be an understatement. Uh, today we are joined by Dr. Mike Michael Chamberlain, University of Georgia, and Dr. Brett Collier from LSU. And we are going to spend the next hour and 15 minutes or so talking turkeys. Uh, you guys submitted a whole bunch of questions on our Facebook group. We compiled all of those as best we could, kind of weeded out the duplicates. And Brett and Mike and National Wild Turkey Federation were so generous to invite me up to a camp. They were doing some some filming and stuff in Florida. And I was able to go up there a couple weeks back and spend the afternoon with them. And aside from being brilliant scientists, these are really, really good guys. They invited, they insisted that I stay and join them for a meal. Just salt of the earth guys, really enjoyed being around them. And hopefully this is a... The first conversation we have with them, but definitely not the last. I'm, I'm sure we'll be able to cycle back on this. So I think you guys are very much going to enjoy this conversation. Doctors Mike Chamberlain and Brett Collier coming at you right now. So first question is always the same, but I got two guys here tonight. So first up, I'm going to start with you, Mike Chamberlain. Who is Mike Chamberlain? Mike Chamberlain is a professor at the University of Georgia and a, an avid hunter. Okay. Yeah, you, I think, are you Warnell School? Is I am, it? Warnell School of Forestry and Natural Resources. You're actually the second Warnell School interview we've done. We okay. interviewed uh, Dr. Richard Chandler. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A while back on deer in South Florida. Yep, yep. Richard and I worked together on a deer project in Arkansas, actually. Great guy. Yeah. Great interview. Yeah. Super smart dude. And we have Brett Collier here. Brett, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Good. Who is Brett Collier? Uh, Brett Collier is a uh, professor at Louisiana State University, and I guess I suppose I'm also an avid hunter. Uh, professor of what? Uh, wildlife biology. Okay. And wildlife biology yep. here too? Wildlife is? ecology and management. Yep. Okay. Same. We, we, we call these the baseline questions. Every interview we do gets these same three questions. So, Mike, I'm going to start with you. Um, first one is, you, you go into the woods, what's, what's your go-to uh, snack? What's in, your, what's in your bag? Venison jerky. Really? Oh, homemade. Yeah. homemade. Oh, homemade. Obviously. Yep. yep. Brett? <laughs> Hershey's Kisses. Really? Yes, absolutely. I, I got a sugar I got a sugar crush, man. I got a sugar crush, too. That doesn't <laughs> seem very efficient because we're in Florida. Though. Oh, no, pre-peeled. Okay. Oh, oh. Ziploc oh. bag of Hershey's Kisses, pre-peeled. This is a man that's prepared. All right, second one is favorite Little Debbie snack. Pecan twirls. That's solid. I love them. That's solid. Con twirls. And it's like a breakfast food or a... Or it, it's an anytime treat, man. And it's, yeah. be, it's better than a normal boring fudge round or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. Speaking of normal boring. Yeah, we, we, had to, we had to discuss what it was because I was like the hamburger with the white filling in the middle, but oatmeal cream pies, man. That's where it's at. That's solid. <laughs> that's very solid. And then the, the last one that's always the most controversial is um, how do you feel about pineapple on a pizza? That is so wrong. Okay. That's the right so answer. So wrong. It's just so wrong. I can't tell you how many times I've almost ended the interview at this point. <laughs> Brett, what about you? Pineapple should be eaten fresh for a dollar in Hawaii and basically put nowhere else. Yeah. Maybe in some kind of a drink. Perhaps if you're into fruity drinks. Oh, yep. yeah. yeah. Maybe in some sort of drink. But beyond that, pineapple has no behavior on any sort of pizza. Topic. Not at all. Okay. Um, Let's go back, Mike. Tell us, tell us a little bit about who you are professionally. Just give us a quick hit on that. Um, professor, I've been studying wildlife as an academic for about 20 years now. Um, been in the game 
prior to that as a graduate student doing the same type of work for about 10 years. So I've got about almost 30 years in this game. And it's been primarily focused on turkeys, turkeys and or predators. Is that a lot of work on, on turkeys? I've studied turkeys my entire career, but I've also done work on coyotes and bobcats and bears and deer and other species. But turkeys have, have been your main focus. Yeah. 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 And Brett, you, yeah, um, I guess I'd be about in my 19th year. Uh, same general story as Mike, academic at a university. Uh, been studying turkeys. Didn't start studying turkeys full-time until my postdoc after I'd uh, done my Ph.D. Um, I did a deer for my Ph.D. Okay. Um, and then, you know, same general story, although I don't work as much on the mammalian side. I spend more time on the avian side. So uh, a lot of work on a woodcock, uh, you know, gallinules, white-winged doves is a big thing of mine. And then turkeys pretty much full-time for about the last 16 years. We'll have to have you come back for a moorhen special. Absolutely. Gallinule special. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> We'll let you do a deep dive. I love those things. Yeah, we do too because they're delicious. <laughs> yes, they are. But they're not much like hunting. They're a lot more like picking them up. Uh, both of you guys, obviously academic, but also do, do you teach? Yes. Both yes. of you teach as yes. well? Yes, And um, obviously, as you mentioned, both of you are, are hunters. So that's that's also a unique uh, kind of blend that we, we don't normally get. So we're going to go... What we did is... And I'm going to mention this in the open too, but what we did is there's a lot of... You guys have been on the podcast rounds. So y'all yeah, have been, yeah. y'all have been beating mm-hmm. it up. So what we did is we asked our podcast listeners what questions they wanted us to ask y'all. Got so we, we asked this about six weeks ago. So you've probably gotten some of these questions since then on other podcasts. But what, what we're going to do is just kind of kick that off as a, a conversation and, and see where it goes. And I'm that sure it'll good. be more than enough. But before we do that, I got, I've got, um, I got a real quick kind of question for both of you. That's a, that's a baseline setter is if turkeys didn't exist, cause we're going to talk entirely about turkeys. It feels like. If turkeys didn't exist, what would be your thing? Mike, I'll start with you. Gosh, I would say of all the critters I've studied, and this may not be a popular answer, but coyotes would be the critter that I would really lend a keen eye towards. Why is that? Because they are the absolute epitome of of survival. I mean, they are adaptable. I mean, they're, if you really, and this is sad in some ways that we have a 35 pound dog that is the penultimate predator in most of our ecosystems in the Southeast. That, that's, it's, it's sad, but yet it's remarkable that you have this dog that has done what that species has done in the amount of time it's taken them to move eastward and to adapt to our our southeastern landscapes and to be able to prey on the species that are here as successfully as they have is pretty remarkable. Um, so I, it's probably not a popular answer, but it, they are a really interesting species. I, I agree with you. They're fascinating. And I don't, I don't, I get the, I get the coyote hate, but I also am fascinated by them. It's almost yeah, yeah. like a morbid curiosity. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What about you, Brett? Oh, white winged doves. Absolutely. Really? That's, that's Okay, that's oddly specific. Why white wings? Uh, a native species to Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and California that is basically introduced to Florida in the 1970s, I think it was, and rapidly expands along interstate corridors all the way up the eastern seaboard, all the way up to Kansas and Nebraska, slowly moving into Louisiana and the Midwest, mm-hmm. and 
more white wing doves are shot in states like Texas than morning doves are shot in states like Louisiana and Alabama and Mississippi. And we know very little about their ecology. And what we do know is fairly, it, it's excellent science, but it's fairly outdated. It's 30 to 40 years ago. And probably 30 to 40 years from now, white wing doves will usurp morning doves as one of the primary dove species found across the southeastern United States. This is so, like this is like GameStop science here. Yeah. Get in, get in now on the, on the ground floor. White winged right? doves, absolutely white winged doves, and they're delicious too. Yeah, they're yeah. doves. So, and they're, but they're a little bit bigger. The coyotes aren't really that good. You, you got me on that. Yeah, one. That was, sorry, man. I'm checking out yeah. on the coyotes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had a minute to plan. The coyotes, so. they're, they're terrible. Yeah. Yep. So let's start. Let's start here, and I'm 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 going to ask a really broad question again, just to kind of set the table. How are turkeys doing? Like at a national level, how are turkeys doing? Or or a southeast level? Let's 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 baseline there too, right? Yeah, like yeah, you yeah. guys primarily mm-hmm. study easterns in the southeastern United States. So yeah, yeah. You'll you'll delve in as you talk a little bit. You'll mention a Rio or a Osceola or whatever, but yeah. primarily we're so talking easterns, right? Across the the southeastern United States, populations are in a, a long term decline. Um, we've seen declining trends in production being poults per hen that are produced in the in the summer. That has declined across all states for about the past 15 to 20 years. The, the, the decline has been very, very slow, but it's been precipitous. Um, harvest has stabilized in some areas. It's decreased in other areas. It's all over the map, but the bottom line is we're not producing as many birds as we did 20 years ago, and harvest in, in many states has, has reached its apex and is starting to decline, sometimes by 40, 50, 60%. So there's, there's concern that you know, we have, we have a, a trend that's certainly not headed in the right direction. Something, something I think, Brett, you mentioned this to me, all turkey harvest is additive. Is that is that correct, or or most turkey harvest is added? Yeah, it's not compensatory. So, Can you talk about that? And right, um, so the, the difference because the difference between additive and compensatory, you know, is you want to explain that quickly? Re- yeah, it's it's, it's making it re- a really complicated concept. Really simple is um, compensatory harvest or compensatory mortality is a situation where um, you kill something that would you know, you harvest something that would have died anyway. Within right. the mortality Within range the, of that the species. the general mortality spectrum for that species, you know, you, you kill an individual that's a lot older, you know, and you have senescence, and it would likely have died that year anyway. Uh, or or density-dependent effects, you know, there have been too many, and if you didn't harvest it, it would have probably died anyway due to lack of resources. Additive mortality is a little bit different. Additive mortality is you take all the mortality from all the other causes, Predators, uh, pre- hit predation, you hit by a car, tree falls on you, whatever. And then turkey harvest gets stacked on top of that. And uh, back to the 1980s, mm. um, all of the, the science that we know about on turkeys has effectively said that um, birds that aren't shot survive. Now, now that's, that's a really broad paintbrush, and I'm not saying that Every bird that not that doesn't get shot doesn't get predated, but the proportion that don't get shot that then don't die of something else is really, really, really low. Um, there's no such thing as you know true additivity, but it's it's pretty close to that. Bottom line is, you, if if we don't shoot this bird, most of them survive. Yeah, males. Males. 
Yeah, very, very, yeah. Males, is very important to think about that. We're talking about males here, not females, because females have a completely different suite of uh, ecological impacts to them that does not typically include harvest in a lot of states. Because of nesting? Yeah. I mean, is that yeah. why? Is, are they more susceptible yeah, absolutely. to predation? Yeah, yeah, yeah predation absolutely. during nesting. Okay. Um, all right, so all turkey harvest is additive. How does that work? Like I'm familiar with the term maximum sustainable yield. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm assuming when a when a state agency, which you guys are not, you guys are, are academics, but when a state agency sets their levels, they're they're looking for harvest to be reflected in maximum sustainable yield. Can you explain how that works? Or well, it, turkeys maybe not necessarily so because what what agencies are trying to do is they're trying to provide a certain level of harvest. Yeah that's commensurate with the number of people that want to partake in the activity relative to the bag limit in the state. So for instance, if you have X number of turkey hunters and you have X number of turkey hunters that harvest one bird, two bird, three birds, then you have the agency has some idea about what the, you know, the playing field, if, if you will, here's what it looks like in our state. So here's how much opportunity we can provide, and here's what we think the harvest is going to be, as long as the kind of the trend is is sustainable, then the agency, most agencies want to give as much opportunity as they can, because opportunity is what hunters want. They want to be able to go in the woods, and they want to hear the goblin turkeys, and they want to do their thing. So the agencies are kind of balancing this hey, as long as we can sustain the harvest that we're in and we're producing enough birds to do that, then we're going to continue to allow opportunity at a certain bag limit, et cetera. Gotcha. So th there seems to be kind of a growing concern, though, and you, you opened with this comment. There seems to be kind of a growing concern that turkeys are in a decline. I mean, that, that doesn't seem debatable, right? No, it's we, not. We know, no, we know it's that. Not. So – one of the questions we continue to have asked by listeners of our podcast, folks who have listened to you guys other places, is what what are the measures, and I don't think there's a single thing, I think this is a broad mm -hmm. question, what are the measures that we have to look at or, or some of the things we need to look at to make sure there are turkeys for my grandkids to harvest? Like what, what are some of the steps that, that you guys see? As I heard you use the quarterback analogy the other day on a, yeah, on a, yeah. on a podcast. Yeah. What, what do you see as the quarterback watching the whole game, not as – you know, me as a fan watching just the running back running Yeah, ball. so that analogy is, which Brett and I have talked about this a lot, is, you know, I try to look at, at turkeys and, and so does he, that we're kind of a coach. We're using the coach's perspective of the landscape, if you will. And, you know, you have a coach that's – he's watching how this entire field operates. He has position – he or she has position coaches that are paying attention to the defensive backs and the wide receivers, et cetera, et cetera. But the coach is standing there kind of looking at the whole playing field and thinking to himself or herself, hey, how is all of this working together? That's the viewpoint that I tried to take, and I know Brett takes it as well. So from that perspective, I'm not trying to focus attention on who has the ball because that's what we as human beings, we do that. We tend to focus on who has the ball. And who has the ball in the turkey world today could be – predation and tomorrow it could be disease it's it, whatever is popular whatever somebody brings up as being the smoking gun and there is no smoking gun there are multiple facets that of this bird's life and the and how it's interacting with things on the landscape that are influencing these declines 
so from a coach's perspective, you see all these things and you realize they're all interacting together and how they're interacting is differing from one spot to the other. So in other words, here where we're sitting in Florida, there may, you may see very low predation rates. Uh, you may see that, that habitat issues that you see in other parts of the species range are not problematic here, yet some other issue that's on the playing field may be having a disproportionate effect on the population here, and you go 100 miles north of here, and you see a completely different playing field, if that makes sense. And the I positions think change. Yeah. The positions and how each position influences the coach's perspective, that changes, if that makes sense. And I think that my, and the only thing I'm going to add is I think Mike's analogy to a coach is correct, but a coach is also watching all the players on the field, figuring out what he needs to do next year or the year after that, or the year after that. And next part, game, yeah, yeah next, game, next, next game, game, next game. What's yeah. in for turkeys, what do we do next year? You know, if, if they go to the playoffs, what are they gonna do? What are we gonna do in five years? And I think that one of the things that we're fortunate to have the ability to do is that we're not restricted in our thought process and that we can sit back and say, okay, given what we know right now, where are we gonna be in five years? And, and that's not something that probably most people that are watching the game are thinking about. They're thinking about, okay, did the quarterback, you know, hit the tight end for the first down? They're not thinking about, are we going to have a field to play on six uh -huh. years from now? And I think that the coaching analogy is really a good analogy in this case because in addition to seeing the field, we're thinking about who do we need to replace? What do we need to fix? What do we need to manage? How do we move forward? And, and I think it makes it really, uh, really attainable for, for people thinking about kind of what we do as a job. So, I think that's the best analogy I've heard on conservation in general <laughs> in a long time because you see that, you see that in pockets anywhere. We were sure. talking about waterfowl earlier. Or, you know, we've talked about plants. You can talk about a lot of stuff. You see that in pockets where it's easy for me as a consumer with no, no scientific background to, to hang up on this one thing. And really you've got folks out there that have a much more holistic picture of the whole ecosystem and how it, how it impacts, how different things can impact sure. different things. Right. And that's how we work as human beings. I mean, yeah. we're, we're not, I'm not being critical of people for, for paying attention to who has the ball. I mean, I do this every day of my life. I, I, I did focus it today. on, yeah, I focus <laughs> on what's in front of me and I focus on my property or, or my family or my interactions mm -hmm. with other people. And then I step back and realize that everyone else is having those same interactions. They're having those same experiences. And I realize that, okay, I need to be a little more, um, I, I need to have a different perspective on how I think about life. And, and in, in this case, we're talking about turkeys, but I think it, yep. it, it translates to all aspects of our life. Everybody has the quarterback view but if you, if you could take your quarterback view or you're watching the ball view and kind of step back and think, okay, how are other quarterbacks seeing it? Then you'll realize that there's broader perspectives out there. And that's what it's going to, in my opinion, that's what it's going to take to ensure the future of this bird and other game species. We are going to have to collectively figure out how – to put our different perspectives on the same playing field and make them work. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, uncomfortable thing. Thank you for going into that first off, because I think that's one of the most important 
I heard it. I heard you talk about it on a podcast, I think with the university of Florida and, and use that analogy. And I thought, man, that's one of the most powerful things I've heard. And it's kind of a silly throwaway analogy, right? Like you're talking about football games, but yeah, it's yeah, really not. Yeah. It's really powerful when you, when you use that as an example. What, let, let's talk about this is a, okay. I'm getting into some user questions now. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going yeah, to pivot. It's going to sound like a non sequitur here, but I'm gonna, it's going to be <laughs> a non sequitur. So, um, Folks have heard you guys talk about LEX. Mm-hmm. First off, can you give a quick overview on what a LEC is? And, and, you want to do it? And, yeah, it yeah, basically, ahead. a LEC is just a spot where males are going to display for females. Just a spot where some group of males will show up and they'll do their thing and the ladies are going to pay attention. So, so these questions are going to, I think, kind of follow quick hit on what we were talking about a minute ago where you as a coach are kind of watching the whole game or a resource manager mm-hmm. is kind of watching the whole game. So these are going to all kind of be questions about defensive backs or safeties or whatever. Sure, so, sure, sure. To beat that analogy to death. Killing the dominant bird in the area is something that we do as turkey hunters a lot. So in, in a lek, as I understand it, there's a hierarchy there. And when you kill the, 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 the top dog, the lek has to sort itself back out. Am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. How, how do you think that's affecting bird populations in – because this is an animal we hunt during its mating season, right? right? right like, we yes. don't do that with – I'm a waterfowl guy. We don't do that with ducks. Right. That's crazy to me. Yeah. So, and I'm a turkey hunter, yeah. but I'm not – I won't call myself a turkey hunter. So, can you talk about that a little bit, some of the – Yeah, I mean, the, the bottom line is we don't know with wild turkeys what effect going in and taking one, two, however many dominant birds from some geographic area. We don't really know what effect that has. What we do know is that intensive harvest early in the season, where you take a large percentage of your males, including your dominant males, has reproductive consequences. Um, And what we also know is that for species that use mating systems like turkeys use, that when you go in and you harvest dominant males from the population, that there are consequences to nesting and production in that population. In other words, you see changes in mate selection. Some females just, they slow down how, they're, mm-hmm. how they are making decisions on the landscape. They don't just go breed with the next guy standing there. So in other words, you go into Lex and you take out dominant birds and that causes a disruption in other species that use a system like turkeys that has consequences. That's been documented clearly in the literature. What we don't know is exactly how that functions in turkeys, but, and I've said this before, I'll say it here, it's logical to me to think it has some consequence. We just don't know exactly what that is. And, And I'll add to that, just and Mike's absolutely right, but um, if you think about ber- birds in general, the the kind of standing rule in birds is the er- the earlier in the year that you breed and get on a nest, the more successful you are. It's it's <clears throat> it's widely known in aves yeah. that you like want. That's not talking turkeys. No, that's talking birds. Birds. Oh, birds. birds. Things okay, with yeah. feathers, right? Um, you know, we- weird flying dinosaurs. If you the earlier you breed, the more successful you typically are nesting. Right. Okay. You and, compl- and the more successful yeah. your young are. Your young are because they're they're older, they're bigger, 
you know, they're, they're better able to winter, to get through the winters, all those type of things. You know, they're, they're born earlier. But, but what's interesting, what goes along with kind of what Mike is saying with the idea of Lex and removing the dominant male is removing of males. And again, you know, we're, we're down here in Florida turkey hunting, so it's all, you know, we're, yeah, we're, we're hunters. We're here to right? remove a male. We're here right. to remove a male, right? <laughs> y'all y'all but, are both willingly removed. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the removal of males obviously has an you know will have an impact on that system as it has an impact in all the other systems the question is how big of an impact and some of the data that we see now is the breeding period for first nest attempts in female wild turkeys just as an example historically we thought it was about one day between the first dominant female in a flock to breed and then go out and start laying her eggs. And then the next day, the you know, second most dominant female would go out and start laying her, you know, start her nest and so on. Right now, we're seeing data that says that that period can be anywhere between 40 and 80 days based on the same flock size of say seven or eight females. So you can have birds that the first female goes out on, I don't know, the, the first of April or you know, yeah, end of April, April at some first, point. Yeah. And then the last female doesn't initiate her first nesting attempt until 80 days or 60 days later. Th that is something that we're mm -hmm. actively focusing on because that is too long. <laughs> that's, that's two and a half months later, which means that if your first nest is April 1st for your first bird that's dominant in that flock, there may be issues where your last bird that's the most subdominant in that flock doesn't get to breed until the beginning of june effectively or she's breeding and she's, yeah. she's being bred to the point where she can produce a clutch yeah so she's stored enough sperm that she can actually sperm's viable enough where it'll fertilize a clutch yeah. if you if you look in like species like prairie chickens there's been research on this so that may not seem like a big deal. Like, okay, well, you got one hen that lays today and you got hen number five that starts three or four weeks later, let's just say. Well, that's not a big deal. Yes, yes it is. Because like we just talked about, what happens is those first hatch clutches, those first, the early bird gets the worm analogy, poults that are produced three or four or five weeks ahead of the next poult, they have an advantage. They have a fitness advantage that is not just right then in their, their first summer. That confers a greater lifetime fitness advantage. If you're, if you're hatched early, you have greater survival. So if you think about it, if most of your, if your, most of your surviving birds are produced early, then early produced birds dominate your populations. Gotcha. Well, now you take a population and you spread that effort out across 60 or 80 or 90 days where you've got some clutches that are hatching in June and some that hatched May the 1st. And then what we will often see, we'll have clutches hatching in the South in July. July. Yeah. Now you've got a brood that is being hatched. At, think about it in the deep South, the most inhospitable time you could possibly be hatched. If you're something that eats bugs and succulent insects, uh, in succulent vegetation would be in July. It's dry, it's hot. So you've got poults that are produced at one time a year early and everything is, is rejuvenating and everything's succulent and it's green and you've got insect communities that are thriving. And then two months later, 
the whole playing field flips. And now you've got Polts that have the cards stacked against them. That's the problem with having nesting effort stretched across 80, 90 days. And that's what the work on prairie chicken showed was that some of these hens just say, you know what? I can't figure out exactly who I want to breed with because the dominant bird's gone or multiple dominant birds are gone. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to step back and I'm going to reevaluate the playing field here. And once I do that, now I'm going to go pick that dominant bird. Now they've had time to sort themselves out mm -hmm. and I'm two weeks behind. Okay. Well, like we're talking about, if you're two weeks behind and the next hen is a week behind and the next thing you know, you see what we see right now in our southeastern populations, which is nesting seasons taking three months. It used to take them six, you know, 30, 40 days. If you look back 20 years ago. I'd say it's almost in some cases well, closer to five months right now. Yeah, and then yeah. the real complication on all this is not just the fitness of the, the poults within the year. It's that the following spring, you've got birds that range in age juvenile females that range in age from seven months to 11 months. And there's a reproductive implication for that as well going forward, which means yep. that the ones that are seven months may not actually be reproductively active even the next year because then they're only 19 months old. Yeah, if you if one really – and that's – Brett brought up a, a really cool point. If you, if you go back and look at literature from 25 years ago – studies that were published on wild turkeys they'll sh they'll say that juvenile females one-year-old females mm. so think a bird that was hatched last year they contributed a lot to, to nesting a lot to reproduction this is 25 years ago yes. in yeah okay. absolutely and now we see the juveniles contribute almost nothing yeah five percent maybe and and part of the reason is they are not as old as those birds 25 years ago they are several months younger they're still juveniles yeah. but in, instead of them being 11 months old when they breed they're eight months old or physiologically old. they're not the same size wise they're not the same and and what, and what you see yeah. is that juveniles right now contribute almost nothing to nesting in the southeast we see almost no but historically success. they did yes yes what changed that's one <laughs> that's what we what we think is going on it is it's multifaceted yeah. but what do you think changed to stretch out that that season one we have predation issues now that didn't exist 25 years mm -hmm. ago i mean if you look in the southeast the predator communities that we have they're one they're more diverse there's just more stuff yeah. out there two all credible information suggests that things like raccoons the smaller kind of carnivore carnivores they're more abundant we don't know we don't have any idea how many are out there we just yeah. know that nobody's counting raccoons no mm -hmm. but they anecdotally they are more abundant than they were and we've removed trapping there's no fur, there's the no fur market at all now so there's no incentive really out to trap other than i want to manage these species that are eating my turkey or quail or whatever right. whatever so you, you've got predation issues. You also have habitat issues. If you, if you look at, like, for instance, you know, hens in the, in the winter, in the southeast, they, their body condition going into nesting is largely dependent on hard mast. They need acorns, acorns. acorns. And 
to do that, you have to have hardwood forest. And if you look across the Southeast 20 years ago, and you look at how much hardwood forest has been lost in the last 20 years, it's dramatic. So we've converted a lot of our hard mass producing forest into shorter rotation wood fiber forest. Wood fiber, yeah. And so what you now have is a landscape, and you've seen this, everybody, you can see this. You drive around and you can see a, a pine dominated forest that has hardwood stringers and riparian areas, these very narrow areas that have hardwoods. Well, that used to be a hardwood pine or pine hardwood stand, meaning there were hardwoods scattered throughout. Mixed. Yeah, and now that's gone and it's been replaced. So the carrying capacity for a wild turkey in the winter has declined. And now what you see with our GPS data, we see flocks of hens. I've posted this recently on social media. They'll use seven or 8,000 acres in a month. And if you go back 20 years ago and look at, at fall and winter home range sizes in the southeast, there were a couple thousand acres for the entire winter. Okay. We see five, seven, 8,000 acres a month sometimes. Yeah. These birds are covering some ground. And if you think about it from an energetic standpoint, you have to cover more ground, you have to have more resources. More food, absolutely. So. And, and without the hard mast, I'm guessing that's a more energy efficient food oh yes yeah yeah like, very much yeah. so yes. yeah it's, it's high carb so now you go in and and this is a problem and this is my speculation to some degree we suck at being able to figure out what their body condition is we kind of use like fat on their breast and their weight yeah but we we don't really have a really good idea of hey she's better than the other hen is and part of the pro- and part of the problem with that is is that when we actually get our hands on a wild turkey where we could take any sort of physiological measurement because i mean we could probably figure it out we're so far removed from the period where they're doing the stuff that yeah. it matters yeah. i mean we get we catch turkeys in january we right? don't know what happened to we, her in november yeah and, you know, right, and, right, and what right. we're really interested in is what is her condition in april right when she's nesting mm. so there's some speculation that goes on there on the yeah. relative impacts of things like weight yeah. and size, you know, and, and, but just body structure and how that relates physiologically to success. So, you know, it's kind of, it's not exactly, it's not an exact measurement. No, it's not. And, and again, this is my speculation. I, I, I've, I've said this other times. I, I, I wonder what birds being a few ounces I mean, this is a nine, let's say you got a nine pound bird. Does a few ounces translate to some difference in how she behaves in the spring? Does, let's just say six ounces. Let's say she's six ounces lighter than she should be. Does that make her leave her nest more often to recess and forage? And, And in so doing, does that, is there some consequence that we're not thinking about that we're not seeing because we just can't measure it. We just don't, like Brett's point, it's, it's, it's perfect. I mean, he's exactly right. We're trying to, we're monitoring behavior in April and we're trying to use data from the bird we caught her three months previously. And we don't know what she's gone through since then. And we have these very subjective ways of, of figuring out how quote unquote good she is. And yeah, I have more questions and answers about that, but. It, it, that's kind of similar to like, as a, we're all parents, 
like when your kid's real little and they're running a fever, like you're freaking out, right? Because they weigh 12 <laughs> pounds or something. Like that's yeah. way more serious than yeah. me at, you know, a svelte 225. Very svelte. <laughs> like, like, yeah, yes. obviously. Ryan Gosling-esque is what I, mean, I heard yeah, I say. thought yeah. Ryan was sitting across yeah, the table. Exactly. Um, but exactly. no, I mean, that's kind of the same analogy, right? Like you're talking in a much smaller package a few ounces could well yeah speculation but it it makes sense yeah Yeah, i mean if you think about a nine pound or you know a 12 pound hen you're basically talking you know a female you're basically talking about the size of a baby right or smaller in that case and you know it's it's an odd situation for us to be in and i think it goes back to the the coach's kind of analogy that was used earlier and that the more information that we gather on what this bird is doing, the more questions it spurs mm. us to try and nail down, okay, is this something that has a real impact that we need to be evaluating, or is this fans being loud? Right. That may or may not right. really have an impact in the game, and that's not something that, that you know, precious scientific dollars need to be focused on. Yeah, I'm with you. So. Okay, so before we get into another kind of oddball question, I feel like you've talked about this a lot, but I do want to touch really, really briefly on the topic of fire and its importance on habitat management. Like, we're, we're, you talked about hard mast in the winter. Mm-hmm. Fire is equally important, as important. I mean, put it, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but it's, it's an important, I've heard you in, talk about it quite a yeah, bit. Yeah, in the southeast, this bird is inextricably linked to fire absolutely and has been for eons pine dominated communities and and some hardwood dominated communities in the southeast can greatly benefit at least from a turkey's perspective by having regular prescribed fire applied to them because that fire stimulates a plant community that this bird uses and selects above other plant communities in its environment. Mm-hmm. And the things that this bird eats, the cover that this bird nests and broods in is linked to fire. The, the clearing out that fire does, it allows yeah. this bird to use the landscape. It's, it's fire driven. Yeah, I mean, Southeast. like today, Absolutely. you know, we're, we're here in Florida and we're hunting a property and as I'm walking about this property, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's fantastic. And all of a sudden, I get to a place where there was a prescribed fire applied this year, and that's where I see my birds. And it's because they they have a periscope for a head, right? I mean, they, they need to be able to see. And and in the southeast, fire allows veg, vegetation to respond, but it also keeps the understory where birds can see and that's how turkeys survive is they have to be able to see looking at at that and this is something i haven't heard you guys talk about before but turkeys to me seem to be one of the species that we hunt that's the most dependent on the patchwork of private and public land oh absolutely like is is that a fair statement you think i mean i'm not trying to diminish deer or anything else but i'm saying turkeys it really seems like you have to have some private landowners that can manage the habitat because they are so well, I mean, most turkeys live on. Yeah, I mean, land. yeah, I mean, yeah. there's no, there's no doubt that private lands basically drive turkey populations across the United States. I mean, there's, there's no questions. If, if turkeys only existed on public lands, we would not have very many turkeys. 
Can you That's, unpack that? Uh, explain that a little bit differently. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you if you think about uh, most states, and I'm going to broadly use a really yeah. really broad. We're talking we're talking here, in right? theoretical terms yeah, here. Th- you know, most states are probably at least 85 percent privately private lands. Um, I mean, at the absolute maximum, right? You know, I mean, probably a majority of states are well into the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we didn't, if if turkeys weren't able to utilize vegetative communities that are on private properties managed or unmanaged for that matter then we would not have anywhere near the abundance of turkeys that we've got in the united states now now that's not to discredit the the state and federal partners that do a ton of management on public lands that everybody can use that's that's not my intent at all but no, i didn't think it came yeah, across that way either but private lands play an integral role in both the it played an integral role in restoration are still playing a role in restoration, especially in some of the places where restoration is ongoing, East Texas mm-hmm. being a, a big mm-hmm. one, um, where they're, they're basically building a corridor in East Texas by stocking private lands. Um, in addition to the fact that, you know, private lands are pretty much everybody, man- I say that, a lot of private lands are managed intensively or moderately for wildlife currently, um, mm-hmm. e- either through and then this, you know, it could include industrial forest land. Um, some industrial forest land is managed for wildlife, you know, ranging from fire and, you know, mechanical treatments, herbicide treatments. So, yep. um, yeah, private lands play a, play, play, have played and will, I think, continue to play a huge yeah. role well, they in have turkey to, right? conservation. We're not putting the yeah. cork back in no. any land. The future only. of this bird depends on private Absolutely. land. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that's an important distinction because yeah. we talk and we love public land turkey hunting don't get me wrong i'm in florida florida is actually 30 percent public land yeah we don't have access to hunt all that but right but without the private land without the (laughs) private land network that we have we don't have the population of turkeys that we have not sure yeah and i think it's an important thing to to acknowledge Mm -hmm. because like you said a lot of that land is managed so well with prescribed Mm -hmm. fires where sometimes the state or the feds don't have the resources to be able to get out Mm -hmm. there and, and, and touch that land the way we'd want them to absolutely all right, we talked about this one a little bit on off air, so I'm going to read the question again, and, and, and it's a little bit of a loaded question, but I just want to see where this goes. But um, National Wild Turkey Federation, mm-hmm. their original mission was to reestablish the wild turkey across the U.S. In some instances, they are responsible, along with local and state officials, for actually introducing the species to areas where turkeys did not historically exist. With that success, we've seen a shift in the focus to sustaining the habitat for turkeys which arguably helps other species. However, in some states, we've seen a a decline. We talked about that. If habitat projects aren't helping boost turkey numbers, are we at a crossroads where we need to look at how hunting and hunting pressure are affecting the overall population? There's a lot in there to unpack. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The short answer is is yes. I'd agree with (laughs) that. Next. Next question. (laughs) Um, No, just, I mean, as brief as as I can be. I mean, the bottom line is harvest management is not unique to wild turkeys. We, we manage harvest for, you're a waterfowl guy, man. I mean, we manage, we manage harvest for every game species that, that, that we enjoy pursuing. And we recognize for all those species that there is a sustainable, appropriate way to set harvest regulations. And, and often we don't hit that sweet spot. It takes time. With this bird, we know that harvest matters. We've known that harvest matters for three decades. Yep. It also matters right now. You have declining populations. You have all these issues that are facing this bird. And you have 
a bird that's harvested during their mating season. So, yeah, of course. I mean, harvest matters and harvest regulations matter. Are we at a place where we need to kind of take a step back? Uh, we were probably at a place we need to take a step back 10 years ago. Um, but I think we got complacent. This is my opinion. Right. I, th- I think we got complacent because turkeys were doing well. There were plenty of turkeys. They Does were. Matter? Mm-hmm. And, and under our noses, our being my nose, Brett's nose, yep. our noses, not the hunter's nose, we started seeing these declines and we didn't pay close enough attention. And suddenly the light bulb clicked on. It's like, okay, what can we impact at a spatial scale that means something to this bird? And when I say we, it, Brett and I, we don't set regulations. Yeah, we that, have nothing that, to do with yeah that. that's a really, and I think that's a really important but, point. But that, the point is, it yeah. like, okay, so I think agencies <laughs> all of a sudden went, okay, wow, we need to, that, we have an issue here. We have populations that are in decline. To the agency's credit. Yeah. yeah. And Listening it, it, to academic. They said, okay, well, we need, we, we, we need to at least think about some changes. But that's not something, I mean, that's not something Brett and I are involved with. We just provide the science and the agencies do with it what they, what they may. Yeah. yeah, I think that it's, it's a really, being an academic, and Mike and I have talked extensively about this and, and probably argued a little bit about it as well. No. no. Be, being an academic, part of our job is to think outside the box in both what's the, the best possible thing that could happen, but also what's the worst possible thing that could happen. And when you're dealing with a species that for all intents and purposes, every data point says production is declining every year by, by some percentage, whether it's the, the breeding bird survey information that the, the federal government you know, aggregates, whether it's uh, hunter harvest information, whether it's the pulper hen surveys that are done at the state level. When, when you're in a situation where every metric says productivity is declining and a lot of states show harvest is also declining to to us that's an indicator generally speaking okay maybe there's things that we need to think about here and and the difference between and i and i want to mike and i make no regulatory no 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 we don't we don't make decisions and very rarely do we even make recommendations they don't even ask yeah they don't ask um, we we you provide, simply provide science. They yeah. said, here's yeah. the, what our data say. Here's our interpretation of it. Go forth yeah. and do whatever you want to do. Make deci- yeah. They make a decision and awesome. Um, you know, we may or may not agree with all those decisions, but that's not, neither here nor but there. Again, it's not our Yeah, it's, it's, it's not, not our job. Our job. Yep. Um, but when you think about the fact that all of these indicators indicate that there might be a problem, we're trying to step, take a step back and say, okay, if there is a problem, what are the most direct solutions in a fairly liberal sense so we can you know, continue to have really long seasons and all that, but also what are the options for a very, okay, we've really got a problem, we need to really rein things back in, what would we also do there? And, and I think that that's a, it's a difficult situation for us to be in because we can only talk about what the science shows but we don't have any mandate for decisions. Right. And 
you know, and, I, and the science is, and the thing is, the science is not absolute. Absolutely. Science has never yeah. settled. Right. I've so, had that settled yeah, so, a bunch of times. You know, so we collect data on some this study site this year, and the next year on some different study site, we see a slightly different trend, and it takes years and years mm-hmm. and years to to get a data set that it will stand up and have the rigor that it needs, and. We're just now getting there. Within the past few years, we've accumulated yeah. so much data yeah. that we can start answering some of these more difficult, complex questions. But science is not absolute, and and, yeah. and when and and I get it because I'm a turkey hunter. So, so I, I yeah. you know, I look at it and I think, well, I want some answers. And I, so I get when somebody says, well, hey, you just acknowledged you don't know. You, right, I don't know, but I. I speculate this is what or something, whatever it yeah, is. And there's, there's a difference, I think, between I don't know with absolute certainty and without trying to be the academic saying I've studied this. I'm first, pretty. I'm pretty sure the last twenty years. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure that I'm right. What's yeah. the term from seventh grade science? An educated guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I think we call right. them scientific yeah. wild ass guesses sometimes. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But but we're we're pretty confident, I think that most of the data that we're seeing is trending in the direction where you know regulatory decisions are going to have to become part of the discussion in the future what those are going to be is not up to us because i mean it's it you know you look at it from an agency's hat they're they're walking a tightrope, man. Yeah, yeah, because they're going to listen to stakeholders like me yelling at them. Exactly, absolutely. You don't have to listen to that, right? So they, well, yeah. I do, but well, you do. <laughs> they, you know, agencies are trying to provide opportunities so that hunters. I mean, we want to hunt. We want to be a, a field, yep. and agencies recognize that that our dollars are what's running the show. So they want us out there, but they're also trying to ensure sustainable populations of whatever it is. So, and, and, but, but, right. the, and, but people want to hunt, and this is a broad paintbrush again, people want to hunt tomorrow. Yeah. We want to ensure sustainability in 2035. Can I say it this way? People want to get a first down. You guys want to make sure we win the game. Yeah. Is that, is that uh, fair people to go want back to get to a that? first down in the first game of the season. Yeah. We want to make sure we win the next four Super Bowls. There you go. Build a dynasty. Yeah. 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 All right. Let me ask you a fun question, and you guys may hate this question, but it's it's a fun question, I think. Um, and bear in mind, I'm wearing no protective gear, <laughs> and I'm a waterfowl guy. Okay. But um, – and let me preface it this way. In conversations with waterfowl scientists – It's going to be a great question. It really is. <laughs> I, I'm really trying to tee it up right. In conversations with waterfowl scientists – there's selectivity in backbreeding on hybrids. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, so you don't see if – if you get a black duck mallard cross, that black duck typically will select back to the mallard. Mm-hmm. It, and, and so you don't get interbreeding. Got a lot of questions from our listeners. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're in Florida. Everybody wants to talk about Osceola's and Easterns. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure – there. I mean, there's overlaps of, of birds throughout sure. the country. Yeah. Is there ever a concern or an advantage to genetic diversity of – hybridization and or or is there selectivity in backbreeding or can you talk about that a little bit like like i don't know that i asked a question there, no, but I'm, yeah I'm just, so so the the phrase you'll hear you you will hear thrown around a lot is the super turkey hybrid between an eastern and a rio okay we we hear that all i call them super turkeys i hear them all the time um where where you've there's a hybridization range 
that runs kind of, you know, north-south through Nebraska and Kansas and Oklahoma, and East Texas, and it's small, right? It's so fairly it's a narrow thin line between yeah, the populations. And, and for some odd reason that I'm, I've admittedly, having studied both species intensively, am unclear on yet, um, I haven't seen any super turkey come out of that. So, so that, that belt doesn't seem to be expanding out. I don't think so, no. There's, there's yeah. always been, I mean, there's always been yeah. hybridization Ways? At, at these where these subspecies ranges yeah. meet. There's always been this ebb and flow where... I mean, it goes all the way up into nearly to, not Atlanta, but you know, it like goes a I mean, third of the way into instance, southern Georgia. For instance, Osceola's, yeah. if you look back at Lovett Williams' yeah. research from decades ago, you know, he showed or had evidence to suggest that Osceola genetics, if you will, were well into southern Georgia, even over into the Alabama. Florida parishes of yeah. Louisiana. Louisiana had a, had a plot. Had a, he had drawn a picture and circled it by hand, and he had yeah. Easterns on the top, the Florida wild turkey, as he calls them. Right. On, not Osceola, it's the Florida wild turkey to love it. On the bottom, and then he had this weird oval that he had hashed both ways. And he said, this is the area of what in, integration. Yeah. We've known that stuff yeah. occur, and, and and if you think about it, it, it kind of makes sense. So, from one year to the next, it probably wouldn't change much. But from one decade to the next, you could see that the 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 zone, if you will, would shift a few miles in one direction or ten miles in one direction. Mm-hmm. And but you also have to understand with wild turkeys that as we were restoring this bird, oh, there were birds plopped out all over all this country. People were pl- sending them yeah. all over the place, right? So yeah. you, you have these pockets of areas where you have birds that are hybrids between Rios and Merriams and Rios and Easterns and all. And that's just the, what we're dealing with with this bird. Yeah, and I mean, if, if someone brings, and, and I'm not saying that this happened, but you know, if someone dumped a bunch of Michigan birds in Alabama during restocking or a bunch of South Carolina birds, you know, Easterns from South Carolina into Alabama or into Mississippi or, you know, Tennessee or wherever, does that make them genetically different? Does does that make the does are they not Easterns now? I mean, in the I think in the deer book they said there's something what like 28 different subspecies yeah, of white-tailed yeah. deer in the United States. I mean, yeah. They're all white-tailed deer. Yeah, right. I mean, we have we have the the lines between the species are really the only lines that generate the subspecies. Excuse me, they're really the only lines that generally matter, and those lines are typically pretty distinct. Yeah. Right? You yeah. know, you have Easterns that are the Eastern part of the United States, and then you start to get into your your more arid birds. Goulds are Arizona, New Mexico, and Mexico. And Merriams are scattered throughout the mountains up into the Dakotas. And then Rios are basically wherever people could drop them. Because Rios are... <laughs> yeah. Rid- yeah. And I mean that. Yeah. And I'm not joking. Yeah. Rios are ridiculously resilient. They're probably the most resilient bird. So if people wanted to move a bird somewhere out west... They just picked up Rios and dropped them out there. And you have these little weird Rio pockets that exist in Oregon. And I think there's some Easterns in Oregon at some place, right? I think actually... Is there, it is I Easterns, right? I think Oregon, there's actually all three subspecies, yeah. I think, are in Texas Oregon. Texas has all yeah. three. I think Oregon has all yeah. three. I think, I think there's Easterns, Merriams, and a pocket of Rios yeah. all <laughs> in, in yeah. Oregon. Yeah. And the fact that there's Easterns in Oregon is just yeah. strange right. to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> Being a waterfowler, obviously, you know, hybrids are like, you got to talk, every duck that gets shot in the course of a year is a hybrid. So that, that, <laughs> yeah. that was a question I had to ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to ask it. I didn't fine. want y'all to throw anything at me, but I, I had it, to ask. It's probably, but hang on. 
following up on this, it's also, and we were talking about this earlier, it's also important to recognize that turkeys do just look different, right? They really do. I mean, you know, you'll, you can be in the middle of eastern wild turkey Alabama, and you can shoot birds that just have phenotypical characteristics that are different. Well, some are lighter, some are darker. You know, it doesn't mean that all of them have bred with, you know, the barnyard birds. It doesn't mean that they are barnyard birds. Just, there's natural variability that does exist, so... All right, I think I've heard you guys talk about this before, but I'm going to ask it because this was the other question we got 27 times. Uh, first, first one is beard rot. Is beard rot a real thing? Is beard rot a real thing? Like that's a that's a term <laughs> that we heard kind of colloquially thrown around all mm-hmm. the time for for a gobbler well, with no beard. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, it's 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 lack of melanin is what it is. Okay. So so um, the reason that the, the beards are dark is melanin content, right? And, um, but melanin also provides a strengthening agent mm. is the easiest way to explain it, right? It's, it's a, it makes it the, the beard stronger. Okay. And if a bird has something that causes a, a lack of melanin, um, vitamin deficiency, whatever, um, what'll happen is it'll, it'll be brittle. Yeah. It'll break. It'll, it'll basically break. it'll, it'll break yeah. off. Right. Um, it's not, it's rot's not the right term. Okay. It, it, it doesn't it, rot all. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not, not rotting yeah, it's off. Not, it's not like it's, not rotten, it's, it's not breaking off. Yes, it's breaking off. Yeah. It's not infected. It's, it's the melanin in the hair as it's growing has some sort of a cycle that occurs where not enough melanin gets put into the growing pattern and it breaks off at the weak point. Gotcha. Um, mm-hmm. So um, Not entirely unlike a human who has, you have brittle hair. That's all I was, was going to ask. Yeah. It's yes. similar, right? Like yeah. it's, that's a vitamin so deficiency. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's not. So it's not like um, they get an infection or they get mold on it and it causes it to fall off. That's not what it is. It's a, it's a different, it's a physiological thing. Um, it doesn't mean the bird's unhealthy. It doesn't mean the bird's not a trophy. It doesn't mean it's not good to harvest them. It's and, just, and that's some of the same issues yeah. you see with the striping in their beards. Yeah. Like they might get a stripe, like a, a white stripe or a rust colored stripes in their beard that's just it's just melanin it's, it's all tied to that yeah, vitamin. All, all tied to that particular yep. vitamin and whether at the particular time they just happen to have enough of it so do, do they how do they get melanin is that is there something it's, they it's, eat like is yeah it, it's foraging right yeah i mean, I mean eat more grasshoppers would you like i have no idea how, what level know. would actually yeah. cause it to do that though i didn't mean to put you on the spot no no not like, at all um I, I don't these either. are the types of questions i'll go back tomorrow and think what actual well, there level was, is was there the, that causes that well there was that paper damn you now i'm gonna, <laughs> no, now I'm gonna have to read about that tomorrow no there, there's been a couple of papers on melanin and beards and that kind of i, I they're old okay. i mean they're in the 50s 60s but and people are interested in this stuff and and i'll caveat this for both Mike and I, and that, yeah, it's cool, but that's a gee whiz cool thing. Right, it doesn't, it doesn't have really like matter. A demographic yeah. impact for us. So, so I'm still gonna have to figure. Uh, out we're gonna figure it out. Is. Don't get us wrong. Yeah, we're both gonna be I wish thinking I could about see Mike right now. Is this He's, the paper what, we were talking yeah, about? What but, that level is? Yeah. What is that level? Um, but what it's all. This? It's additionally difficult because most. Um, Damn it. Well, but poultry, <laughs> turkeys don't have beards in poultry farming. So there, where, where a lot of that stuff comes in for the vitamin deficiency stuff, so because they've been bred to not have them, so it may be really tough to tease that out. Oh, I'll figure it out. Okay, well you can go I'm ahead and read that. Then, so all right, another another Florida question is uh, 
fire ants. Mm-hmm. How, how big of an effect do fire ants have on like turkey nesting? Do you guys, I, I, we've talked about predation. We talked mm-hmm. about, yeah. there's always the concern of burning, which you, you've dispelled, both of you have dispelled kind of in other discussions and stuff. But fire ants, are they a, the, a the big The only problem? nest that, that in my research that we've ever lost to fire ants were two nests, one on the Web Center, mm-hmm. Patrick's work, Patrick's and work. one uh, on Silver Lake Wildlife Management Area in southern Georgia where the, the nest was actually in the hatching process and ants got into the clutch while they were hatching mm-hmm. and the hen abandoned the clutch while they were hatching. Like the, the poults were coming out. Yeah, they were yeah. actually coming out of, pipping out of the eggs, the ants got in, and the quail research shows very comparable results yeah that you- I, th- I, th- I think i remember one from oh, last year or two years ago in the Kasachi national forest just just one where same exact situation yeah, yeah. The, the the eggs hatched and you know we we had fire ants and they killed a couple i think they yeah. got at a couple of poults but i would say it does occur but it's not it's not Pervasive and it's something not to, to remember with wild turkeys and fire ants is turkeys will ant. It's a oh, behavior yeah. that Audubon described back mm-hmm. in the 1830s, yep. where they will wallow in ant mounds and allow those ants to crawl all over them. I've caught birds in the summer that were covered to the point where <laughs> they were biting the hell out of us. <laughs> um, they will they will ant, and they do that. We think they do that to reduce parasite loads in the summer but also they're molting in the summer. And there's some speculation that maybe some of the, the compounds that are in the ant when they bite the skin actually soothe some of that irritation from the molting. molting. That's speculation. But the bottom line is this bird I mean, will go and wallow seen, in an ant mound. I have, I have oh, eyeballed okay. poults on a fire ant mound eating too. Okay. Like uh, pecking away eating fire ants. So I've, I've physically, with my own eyes, seen it. Um, it occurs. I mean, lots of things occur, right? It occurs, but I don't think it's, it's not a limiting. I don't think net. it's a limiting factor no. because a whole bunch of things have to merge together at the exact right time. The eggs have to hatch. The ants have to be there. They have to be there in enough abundance. It's uh, you know, mm. there's a lot of things that have to occur at the right time for that to happen. But it does, It will occur occasionally. Okay, but it's nothing on the scale of like predation. No, like, no, like oh no, foxes no, not at and all. possums no. and no, absolutely no. not. Um, favorite turkey books. What are you, what are your favorite oh. turkey books? And, and I'm not talking like the academic paper. Oh, my favorite turkey book is Tenth Legion. Tom Kelly. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, it, non-academic work. Yeah. Now I have read. I read Lovett's books routinely. Mm-hmm. I read. I read. There was an edited volume in 1992 that was by Jim Dixon. It had a bunch of famous turkey researchers that I read. But my go-to turkey season book is 10th Legion. Sure. Same? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I would say so. Um, I like the uh, – uh, sometimes whenever I'm feeling nostalgic, I'll read uh, McElhaney's book mm-hmm. um, that, that he wrote. I, mean, I can't remember the title of it off the top of my head. I've got it in the office. Um, but it's uh, basically his stories of turkey hunting in Louisiana. Um, and, and it's a, it's a similar book, you know, I saw three birds today and, and that kind of stuff. And it's, it's pretty insightful and it's, it's really, really long, but the prose is good. But yeah, I mean, I, I'd say Tom Kelly's book mm. is, is, you know, good yeah, because everything he describes, I've, I've experienced. It <laughs> and he is such a great writer. Yeah, yeah. he is uh, talented man. What's your go-to turkey call? 
Well, until today, because it, <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> um, I've had the same diaphragm call, and this is going to sound like a lie, but this is God's honest truth, for 19 years. Oh, my gosh. I've used a Quaker Boy diaphragm call off and on for that long. And I've got a couple of slate calls that I'm fond of, and none of that worked today. So I think I'm going to go back to, like, the old boss hen, Quaker Boy, all boss hen, my, my box call tomorrow. But, yeah, I was really – I was really bummed today. You feel, I could see it on your face like you were let down. I was. I was. I was. It is the first hunt that I've been on this year, and I was I was pretty jazzed this morning. And <laughs> and we had crows mobbing everywhere. But you also had 100-mile-an-hour winds. Off. Yeah, but it was – there were crows. It was unbelievable. And they were mobbing two different hawks, kites, and it was just – everything was going nuts. And I'm thinking, any second, any second, any second, he's pow. Wow, and nope, didn't hear that all day. So it was a letdown. But tomorrow's another day, you know. What about what's all you, Brett? What's your, you your go-to call? <laughs> Probably the best turkey call for Brett Collier is not to call. <laughs> um, and and, and I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll be honest, you know. My, mine is taking my dad with me. Yeah, there are a yeah, lot yeah, of people yeah. that are really, really proud of their calling ability, and I am certainly not one of them. Um Actually, today, uh, I think I was carrying a old diaphragm Zinx call, and I want to say that I had a White River Custom Slate on me, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but it's, you know, a man can be really good at a lot of things. I'm really good at studying turkeys, <laughs> um, and, and I'm pretty comfortable with that. I'm, I, I like to think yeah. I know a lot about turkeys. Um, not being able to exactly speak their language, I'm pretty okay not being perfect at that. The call well, that sounded so. best today for me was <laughs> was, a, and I'm, this is a shameless plug, but Mossy Oak Gamekeeper Slate Call. For whatever reason, where we were sitting. It sounded better today. It didn't do any good, right. mind you. It did. It did today not. is a terrible benchmark. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, God, it's yeah, windy yeah, yeah. and it's sprinkled. So I even and, yeah. tried. I tried two different diaphragm calls this afternoon, and I thought they sounded great. And the turkeys didn't agree at all. Like, <laughs> thought they sounded terrible. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna put a bow on this, and and the way I want to do this, I'm gonna let you both take this question, and it's a terrible question. It's a terrible question, but. Well, thanks. Tw- yeah, I mean, you just asked two turkey <laughs> yeah. biologists what we, whether we should be calling them or not. Yeah. So. 25, 30, 50, I don't know. Put, put your own time stamp on this. But if we look back and say turkey management is successful now at that point in time, what are some of the things that we're, we're hanging our hat on for, for that success? I know that's a big question. But. Um, you, know, you mean now or historically? No, or I'm saying it, 2050. 2075, yeah. something like that. If they, if we have successful turkey populations, we're able to turkey hunt. They're going to look back and say, "Man, I'm glad we did these things." I think um, one, if we don't get people to recognize that this bird functions at a scale that's bigger than what the average person thinks. Yeah. So you have a piece of property that's a thousand acres, and your turkeys in your mind are doing well. But you have to understand that your turkeys aren't your turkeys. You're sharing turkeys w- with all your neighbors. If we don't get to a point where we can recognize that this bird requires a scale of management 
that's the region, not your land, the county, but think state, regional level. And if we don't put our collective heads together, we being agencies and biologists and hunters and landowners, and we don't think about proactive solutions to the challenges facing not just turkeys, but all of the species that we cherish, we're going to be in trouble because 30 or 40 years from now, if you just factor in the future and think about what the Southeast is going to look like from a fragmentation standpoint, how many people are going to live here, what our society is going to look like, what their thought process is going to be, what our political process is going to be. Hunters are going to be increasingly in the minority. We have got some significant challenges we need to think about and we need to get in front of them, understanding that we're probably already behind those challenges. We need to do a better job of thinking about how broad this bird and other species like it function. And we're going to have to tackle the questions at a bigger scale than what we've been doing. We can't think about a WMA or a farm. We have to think about states and regions. We got, we got to think about the whole game. Big time. Yeah, nobody manages, and Mike's absolutely right. Nobody manages waterfowl based on the two impoundments that they've got in Mississippi or Louisiana. Or we manage it on a yeah, I mean, scale. a continental. Yeah, yeah I mean, continental waterfowl are managed yeah. at a continental level. You know, I mean, so yeah, I mean, I don't know if I've got a lot to add to that. Um, I think that probably hard regulatory decisions are going to be made over the next 20 or so years. Um, some of them will probably be unpopular to, to the, the day-to-day hunter um, because they're probably in some situations going to limit the ability of the hunter to, to pursue the sport that we all love. Um, maybe not all. Um, and and it may, the decisions may not be that drastic, but you know, when we talk about a species like the wild turkey that's declining at a fixed percentage every year in, in every indice that we have, um, you know, there, there are probably going to be a, a suite of decisions that are made, you know, at the, at the state level and that impact that. And, and, you know, one of the complications with turkey management is that it's at the state level and turkeys, and I don't want to say that turkeys don't recognize state lines, but, you know, eco-regional boundaries tend to transverse mm-hmm. states. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there, there's probably opportunities for multi-state collaborative efforts, and, and there are many are ongoing right now. Um, some of those, Mike and mm-hmm. I, you know, fortuitously have been mm-hmm. collecting the same information the same way for the many for years now. Yeah. yeah, for a decade, trying to get at some of these questions. But I think that there'll probably be a, a really strong push in the future to look at wild turkeys from more of a ecosystem level as opposed to a political boundary level. Um, and, and I think that'll be a positive. Um, I, yeah, you know, again, broader. Yeah, much Think just broader. Macro. Yep. Yeah, big picture. Uh, yep. A big picture type of type of way of looking at it. So, what, what is? And I don't mean to put you guys on the spot with this, but I've heard you both talk about it before. What are the chances of a of a of a poult becoming a, a gobbler? Like it's it's bad, right? Seven percent. Yeah. So basically, now this differs 
yeah, by the subspecies, by, but, yeah. right. but in across the southeast on our study sites, we see about 20 to 25% nest success a year. So 75% of all nests fail. And nest success means an egg hatches. One egg hatches, one at egg least hatches. one. And of those, say, 25% that hatch, two-thirds of them are, are lost before they're a month old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, when you do that math, about 7% of all nests that are on the landscape produce at least one poult that survives one month. And, so and, and, and it's tough being a turtle. Yeah, but the, be really specific here, you know, we're talking about Easterns in this particular yeah, yeah. case. Right. And, and Easterns exist in a fairly stable environment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they don't see the, the pulses that your more arid birds do. So Rios may have no production for multiple years, get a great rain year. And it's, it's, well, it's, it's yes. hydraulic. Yeah. yeah, it's and, rain. It's, yeah, pre- you, it's precipitation at the right time for your semi-arid birds. Yeah, and you tend to see that Merriam's, at least the literature that's out there, they tend to have higher nest success yeah. than Easterns do. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's kind of sitting here as a as a as a turkey hunter. It's kind of a miracle you get to go shoot turkeys at all when you look at those odds, though. Yeah. Oh yeah, every like, time it's, it's crazy to me. I was asked. I, mm-hmm. I, I'm asked this a lot too. It's like what, what like is the most impactful thing about in your hunting life now, based on your research? Like what's like hits you the most? And to me, every time it's like, holy cow, how special that is to stare down that gun barrel, mm-hmm. recognizing that the chances. Like I, I I made a post on this on social media recently. If you if you do those numbers out, one hundred hens produce about eleven toms. Yeah. <laughs> Two year old toms. Yeah. So the the probability that you're looking down that gun barrel at a at an adult bird, it, it the ad the, the 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 odds are so steep for you to be able to do that. That's one thing that's been most impactful about my research career is now. Whole every time I get that opportunity, it's like I, it's special. Yeah. More, much more special than it used to be. It, it's, it's, yeah. I love that. I love the the genuineness, the authenticity of that. Um, yeah. The last thing I forgot to ask, and forgive me, I'm gonna backtrack just a hair, but beer length, spur length have no connection to age of turkey. Is that right? Um, yeah, you're gonna get a shot. I'm gonna get a shot. <laughs> yeah. All right, but that's all right. Ain't I'll nobody else here. Okay. Yeah. Um, no. No. Um, so this, all right. So the science on the matter is pretty gray is the easiest way to explain it. Um, there have been a few papers that have looked at, so, so, so beard length, we can effectively put it into a couple of categories, right? If you don't have a beard, we know you're not an adult. And if you have a beard, you might be an adult. Um, but your beard as an adult can be four inches long or 11. Um, spurs are, are completely different. They, they vary by subspecies, right? I mean, we, we, we're in Florida with Osceola. Yeah, we, we, we know that, you know, Osceola's typically have a little bit longer spurs. Merriam's typically have shorter spurs, but the, there's no, um, gain a year, gain a quarter inch relationship that's right. ever been defined. Um, you can generally assume that if there's nubs, you know, a little short, you know, less than three quarters quarter inch. inches. Yeah. Quarter inch. Yeah. Yep. There, sorry, that's, I said three quarters. Yeah. Quarter yeah. inch. 
that we're talking about a juvenile, right? You can generally assume that if it's bigger than that, you know, half inch, three quarters of an inch, whatnot, we're talking about an adult. But it's not, um, and I'm going to get a shot. I mean, somebody's going to send us. <laughs> nobody, okay. Nobody's going to shoot one, you yeah. on this one. All right, well, somebody's going to send us a hate email. There's no, um, we that bird's got out. an inch and a quarter spurs, it's five years old relationship. And, and, and I'll say this, anybody that tells you that is lying. Now, that's Brett. That was, yeah, Brett. That, that was Brett, by the way. That was Mike not Chamberlain Mike. sitting right here. That was but, not Mike that said that. But what we are trying to figure out, um, and, and we've fortunately we're at the point now where we've got four or five hundred mm. individuals that were captured that had known known ages as Jakes. And, we banded them as Jakes. As Jakes, and were shot. And we can look at that relationship, and it's it's not going to be. And, and I hate to say this, and I don't want to pick on deer, but people tend to want to pack everything into the deer box, right? Oh. It's three and a half. It's we, three we, and a half. We jokingly it's, do that with waterfowl all the time. Sure. Mm-hmm. He shot that duck. Oh, yeah, he's oh, a yeah. three-year-old. Oh, definitely yeah. a three-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. But they want to pack him in the deer box where they've got a very well-known set of, de- of dental characteristics that, you know, oh, it's this, it's that. You know, it's got two cusps on the, the what, third premolar and et cetera, et cetera. Um, if you're for, how about this? If you're fortunate enough to harvest a bird, don't worry about how old it is. Jackpot. Exactly. That's that's it. If Who you're cares? For, if, if you're if you're good enough to get one of the one of the eleven of the hundred. Yeah. Thank you. That's where I was going with that. Yeah. Who then cares? Be happy exactly. and celebrate that. I, yeah. I, I will real quick anecdote as, as an aside. Every time I used to guide tarpon fly, tarpon on fly, oh. and. Every time someone hooks one of those, I'm like, that's a miracle that that happened. And I know there's days when we've had 15 or 20 of those mm-hmm. happen, but you're getting a 200-pound fish that swims in the ocean that you can't see, and you're getting him to eat something the size of a quarter that you tied with feathers that's in your cool. garage last yeah. night. It's the same kind of it's the same kind of logic, right? As as your as your turkey, oh yeah, yeah, looking down the barrel, like it's a miracle yeah. every time it happens. Every time, Mike, where can people find you? Social media? Yeah, so if you type my name on Facebook, you'll find me just michael chamberlain um or if you hit me up at at wild turkey doc wild turkey doc one all one word on instagram or twitter you'll you'll find me and you've been doing turkey tuesdays for about a year now yeah maybe a little over a year now maybe a year year and a few months yeah so i post on social media every tuesday just something informative science-based about turkeys sometimes it's a little little more controversial than others but just stuff that i think people will will be interested in yeah that's actually how i found brett was yeah. through a turkey tuesday okay so brett where, where can folks find you yeah i'm wanna... on facebook it's just my name brett collier it's one t not two um if you do two you're gonna get a, an actor who's significantly <laughs> richer and much more attractive than i am um and then um I on uh, yeah 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 on it. uh on uh twitter and uh uh instagram it's uh at dr short spur it's a uh, dr and then short spur um, and uh, I've had that one around for a while. And I, I don't post as frequently as Mike, primarily because I funnel content to Mike um, for, for Turkey, Turkey Tuesdays, Tuesdays yeah, and yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, and, so we put our stuff together, and yeah. then I'll put it out every Tuesday. You, you, you do do a lot with uh, R3 and stuff, though. Yeah, no, yeah. One of my – so in addition to the, what everybody's kind of hearing right now is that one of my big things is that uh, I direct a – I co-direct with a couple other faculty 
probably what is the largest collegiate new hunter recruitment program in the United States at Louisiana State University. And, you know, we're really proud of it. And we do somewhere between 50 and 90 new hunts a year of college students that have never hunted before. Yeah, it's kick ass program. And it really is. Yes, I was, I was is. Looking, when I scrolled your social media, I found more of that yeah, than I did the it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of pictures of people that haven't hunted with deer and ducks and that kind of stuff. And we're, we're really proud of it. And that's, that's kind of where I spend my social media capital is, is on putting the kids out there that haven't hunted before, you know, college students that are kind of in the natural resources field, but come from the more urban suburban environments that haven't had the opportunities to do that kind of stuff. And it's a, it's a real uh, fortunate opportunity that I get to do that. So. Thank you guys both so much for a, for inviting me up to your Turkey camp. I mean, it's, it's great. Y'all, it smells Absolutely. incredible in here. Those guys have been cooking. <laughs> so uh, thank you guys for having me. And uh, thank you for all the science and all the, all the work you guys do and, and for being hunters too and, and sportsmen and, and looking at all the angles of this. Yeah, thank man. You. We appreciate Absolutely. the time. Yeah, no, this is great. Thank you so much. I cannot thank these guys enough for being so generous with their time. I, I'm, I'm not kidding when I say it was surreal to kind of be there at the turkey camp where they were doing some work with NWTF and to join them for a meal, stand around the campfire, just uh, visiting, hanging out, um, like-minded individuals, just talking about turkeys, talking about fish, talking about deer. Uh, these guys are not just... We talked all about turkeys, but they're not just confined to that thing. They are true sportsmen and true outdoorsmen and true conservationists. And it was it was an absolute pleasure to be able to sit down with them. Uh, please go check them out on social media. You can find them both on Instagram. Brett is Brett with one T, but you can find him at Dr. Shortspur, D-R-S-H-O-R-T-S-P-U-R. And you can find Mike at Wild Turkey Doc on Instagram. He, that's where he does Turkey Tuesdays. It's a great follow. You, you guys don't want to miss it. You can also find him on uh, Facebook as well. As always, we appreciate you listening. If you've enjoyed this show, how about figuring out how to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts that's somehow magically tied to the way people find our show. Or you can just tell a friend about the show, share it on social media, tap somebody that you know and say, hey, have you ever listened to this thing? It's amazing. Whatever you do, we hope you have a great week and we will see y'all Tuesday. Swell with love for us to feel.